2: A word of warning, this podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I am joined by Caroline Bruni, who's coming all of the way from Melbourne, Victoria. Welcome!
3: (laughs) You say that like we're so far away. We're probably like the next suburb over, but that's okay. (laughs) It's cold in Melbourne, Victoria today, and windy. It is. It is, and I'm actually so happy.
2: I haven't had anybody on from Melbourne in a very long time, so. Even from Australia, actually, I think. So it's so good to have you here um, talking to us today. Now, you're a newly self-published author of the wonderful book, More Than One Thing Can Be True, A Story of Survival. Uh, you are many other things. We heard a little <laughs> dog when we started recording as well. You're a dog, mom. You're, you're <laughs> a million and one things. So, Do you mind telling the listeners just a bit about yourself?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, I think that's a really great, it's funny, the title of my book is More Than One Thing Can Be True, and man, do I live and breathe that title. Um- I I call myself a multi-passionate because I have, so I guess what I'm probably most well-known for is um, I'm an entrepreneur. So I run a lifestyle management business called Organize Curate Design. Um, we pretty much just help busy people action things on their to-do list. They outsource to us. That's what we do. So, and I guess if anyone kind of Googles my name and probably tries to find my book or something, they'll probably find a whole heap of articles about how to find you like a life assistant and outsource your life admin. So I've created a whole business around that and that is probably what I'm most known for. But my passions lie in lots of different places. So I'm an artist, um, so I paint. I, as you've just heard, um, also just recently self-published a book. I'm also a model, so I do, um, I often have people like, did I see you at Coles? And I'm like, yes, I'm <laughs> on the Coles poster. Or no like way! In, random, <laughs> in really random places or like, yeah, um, Harris Scarf Magazines or Hair House or just, or like on a commercial that you're just not expecting to see my face because it's out of context. So that happens occasionally. Um, and I'm also a parent and wife. So I've got two children and um, yeah, probably other things as well, but they're the things I'm probably most known for.
2: That's amazing. You're such a multifaceted person, I guess we all are. And it's so true. I mean, you know, that book and your story obviously is only one part of your life, one facet of your life. And it has ripple effects on the rest of your life as as do many other things. But I think sometimes we can really get lost in the story of this is a survivor and not fully see that this is a multifaceted person that has a family, that has friends, that has jobs, that, you know, is pushing and you're a badass. So (laughs) how good is that? And I can see, are these your artworks behind you?
3: Yeah, there are a few paintings behind me. Um, So in it was funny, I didn't paint... I had painted for like 20 years or something. Well, not 20 years, like maybe a little bit less. So I hadn't painted since high school. And um, in lockdown, in we were talking about lockdown before the never ending Melbourne lockdown. Uh, my youngest son needed um, some art supplies and we just didn't have anything at the house. And I was like, this is stupid. You're doing remote learning and we don't have anything. So I was like, I might just get some canvases and some paint and my husband has admitted to me that he had this moment where he was like, everyone painted in high school. This is going to be hilarious. Like yeah. <laughs> what on earth is she doing? Um, and the only canvases I could get were like huge. So the ones behind me are really small, but I've got these really big ones in the other room. And so these massive canvases arrive and paint and everyone's like, what is going on? And I just, Locked myself away for hours. I was finding that I was watching way too much. It was probably when Target King was out. So like way too much Netflix and eating too much food. And I was like, I've got to get away from a screen. So I started painting again and then... I just fell in, I think I made like 30 pieces in 2020. So, um, people started wanting to buy my art and I was just sharing on socials and I was like, this is really cool, but it was hilarious because my husband and my kids had never seen me paint. So they just thought it was like going to be a thing. And then they're like, oh, you can actually paint. I was like, yes, <laughs> I can. I wasn't joking. So yeah, I love it. It's, um. It's been really fun. I haven't had as much time of late. Writing books takes up time and running businesses takes up time, but I've got a piece that I actually want to work on soon. So I'll bunker down this winter and do a bit more painting.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we're hitting winter solstice, so we're getting to the, the you know, the pinnacle of um, yes, darkness and, almost. you know, I think <laughs> being able to let your yourself kind of out you know there's Mm. so many things that you do and even the writing the book and doing things like this can be for joy as well but when you don't have an obligation behind any of it in any way it's Mm. actually something purely for you so it's great to see you like making that time for yourself and and letting that creative expression I guess come out
3: yeah and I think that was the part that I loved the most and I guess that kind of segues, segues really well it was interesting you said something before about um how you know survivors are more than one thing and and whatever else. and and it's really interesting because I've only just in the last, or well, definitely since releasing my book, which only came out a few weeks ago, um, I've only just claimed that part of my story publicly. So all of the other things that I've mentioned so far, are all the things I put in neon lights. Um, I was really conscious for a really long time and I speak of this even in, in my memoir that I worked so hard to make everything as shiny and bright as possible because I didn't actually want anyone to know that there was this dark underbelly. And if I could just keep doing lots of really cool things and being a perfectionist and doing all of those what I now know to be at times really numbing um, and quite addictive processes. And perfectionism is very much often, you know, a double-edged sword when it comes to numbing around trauma. Um, But yeah, I'd worked my ass off for years and years and years just going, okay, next success, next success, next thing, next project. Um, So it's interesting now that I've kind of brought everything home again and made everything quite holistic because I can, I think even if we had spoken 12 months ago, I might have just mentioned like one of the things that I did because there was almost this embarrassment of, uh, I don't want to show off or uh, whatever else because I can only focus on one thing at a time. and um there was this real risk of just showing too much of myself because if anyone found out, you know, it would be really hard to process because I had worked so hard to create such an image for myself that was so shiny and it was all armour. So, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's actually really comforting to just sit and go, okay, this are all the pieces um, because that's a really vulnerable place to be in, but it's true and real, which is a wonderful mental state to be in.
2: And it's also giving you some kind of acknowledgement, I guess, as well, that you're working your ass off, you're doing all of these different things. And, you know, the reaction of most people, 99.9% of people is going to be like, what about us? Like how amazing, how, how strong are you? How much are you working? Like, it's, it's just incredible. But you did say it was, you know, 12 months ago, had I asked you that question. So it sounds like this book and this journey for you has been, been quite a recent one.
3: Yeah, it has. Um, so I guess to share the the kind of part of the trauma that that most people are like, well, anyone that's not read the book and maybe has known me for a while, but hasn't read the book. Um, so I experienced childhood sexual abuse um, at the hands of my father. Um, and that happened for four years when I was between the ages of 10 and 14. So that abuse happened. Um, and why even at like even using the title of more than one thing can be true that abuse happened in a, what I class as a really loving household. So I never wanted for a thing, um, everything I needed other than the obvious safety of um, being physically and emotionally safe, everything I needed was provided to me pretty much at any point in time. So from the outside looking in, it didn't look like anything was wrong. the, once I found my voice and I asked him to stop, he stopped. So there wasn't ever any threats. There wasn't any malice or harm, um, like physical harm done as in, as in violence. Um, but that continued like so, until I fi- found my voice one day and asked him to stop and he stopped. So for about two years after, I had this time period, which is a bit of a limbo period where um, no one knew. So I have an older brother and a younger sister, and my mum. And um, no one knew. And then, in an explosive moment, as a sixteen-year-old, um, having an argument with my mum one day, I told her. And I um, and I share in the memoir just the, the explosive nature of that day and and just how things came out just in this really harmful way from my perspective. But what went on after that is though I was sent to a psychologist and I was given mental health support, um, my mother chose not to not to leave. So we remained in our household, and I say we um, because my brother was a little bit older, so he moved out. Um, he was trying to cope with that news. But my sister, who was eight at the time, wasn't told. So we remained in our family setting, and as I said, Really loving family setting, never wanted for anything, was really well supported and nurtured in every other aspect of my life. So we got to a point where that just continued and continued and continued and we just kept playing happy family as such. So that went on and to be honest, it went on until I was 37. So I'm nearly 40, um, but at the start of 2020, I probably didn't pick the best year considering we were just about to walk into a pandemic. I didn't know this at the time, Um, but I had gotten to the point where I had been carrying the secret and sitting at Christmas dinners and I I'd moved quite a distance from my parents. Um, so I didn't see them very often, um, but I was still in contact with them and there was still an expectation there of me holding on to this secret. Um, and being okay with our family setting and also keeping that from my younger sister. Now, in a lot of ways, I kept that from my sister to protect her. I kept that from her to make sure it didn't happen to her and also to give her a life that I had always wanted. So I watched her create um, or we created a life for her that was completely normal. She never experienced any abuse. She has a wonderful relationship with my parents and she is now a thriving woman, um, doing her thing and whatever else. And so as the years went on and the years went on, I kind of got to the point where I was like, if I tell her I'm going to break her life, but if I don't tell her, I feel like a fraud and we're super close. And I feel like I'm, it was just a, there was no winning in that situation. Um, So it got to a point where I just went, I need to, I can't keep living under this shadow of shame. Um, I need to be able to speak my truth and I need to move on with my life in a way that's really safe emotionally for me. Um, So at the start of 2020, I disclosed to my sister and we worked through a whole heap of stuff as a family. Um, I chose to estrange myself from my parents at that point and then I wrote a book. So it is really fresh and there's still quite a lot that we're all processing. Um, but it, I think the reason why the title of the book to me is so powerful is, as I've shared with people over the last few years, they're just like, Wait, what do you mean? You're that really successful entrepreneur, and look at how great your life is, and all of this stuff. When because as as they see survivors, they expect a particular image, or um, they expect particular behaviour. And I was like, oh no, I worked really hard not to do any of that stuff. I had a really shiny coat of armour on because there were so many other things happening and my parents were more than one thing and i was more than one thing and everything was just happening all at the same time and so i was working really hard to protect that and it's complex and it's confusing and people don't quite get can't quite get their heads around it but yeah i think it's because they don't realize how common it is which is the other part of this story
2: absolutely and it the sadness is how common it is and mm. you know we've been taught so much through our lives, stranger danger, you know, and, Mm. and that's just so not true. And, you know, I think it's powerful with the title of your book as well is a post that I've done before on Instagram as well, that talks about, you know, you can still have love for a parent or a family unit or something like that, but just want the abuse to stop. Or, you know, there can be two things that are, you know, you've got this dichotomy in your mind that's going on, you know, it doesn't not everything is linear and, and black and white and and just easy boxes to put things into. There's a complex feelings for somebody experiencing something so traumatic, and yeah. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that and and carry the weight of that secret. I do relate to that because I know that we kept my abuse secret from my brother. When he found out was when I did the podcast or said I was going to do the podcast and oh, was wow. going to talk so about really my story too. Yeah, and, you know, we are having a few drinks together and he got really upset. He's like a stoic kind of bloke, you know. He's an older (laughs) tradie now. And he was really upset and just said, like, I never knew, I never knew. He's like, I always knew something was going on, but I never knew, like, what was going on. And he harbours a lot of guilt for being frustrated with me, I guess, at times for my behaviour. Yeah, because he didn't know.
3: Yeah. How old was he when when the abuse happened?
2: uh, He would have been... 12 when the abuse happened. So, um, yeah, that was kept very much a secret and he wouldn't have found out till he was 25. So, you know, lived most of his life with this secret, but we never spoke about it. I mean, it was the same thing. It's shrouded in such secrecy because Mm. you don't want anybody else to know. It's a family secret, but you don't talk about this secret at the dinner table. It's not like, it's just literally not spoken about ever. It's taboo we don't touch it, we don't go there. So you said that your siblings were still in the house and, and your brother knew because he was older, your sister was younger than you. Were you worried that by not you know, sharing or something like that that she might be in danger as she got to the age that you were at that time?
3: Uh, so probably, subconsciously, but there was definitely a point where I decided At sixteen, I was like, "Okay, well, we're not going anywhere." So I can't leave because who? I can't have this happen to her. And it was a real subconscious decision. Like I don't remember sitting down and making that decision. And even the enormity of that decision as a sixteen-year-old is ridiculous. But I do remember being very conscious of her behavior, um, and also really conscious of the relationship we had together. So being a 16 year old, like last thing you want is an eight year old kid hanging around you, but she was always by my side. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of that pushback of, you know, go away. You're so annoying kind of behavior because I was really conscious that I needed to keep her close and I needed her to trust me. Um, so I could watch for those behavioral changes. I knew what they felt like for me internally when my behavior had changed. So I was looking out for that in her and um you know I would offer that she could sleep in my bed with me or she could you know just hang out with me and I'd kind of I was all like after the abuse I was always a light sleeper so I would listen out in the night to make sure that nothing odd was happening in the household now there was probably that was a lot of pressure to put on myself and there was in some ways if the if abuse had happened and and I know that it hasn't and we've spoken about that quite openly um And I'm so grateful that everything that I did and and that I also spoke up and spoke to my father and said, this cannot happen. Um, So with using my voice, but also putting measures in place, she was safe. But yeah, I think even when I disclosed her at the start of 2020, there was this feeling in the pit of my stomach that that all of that was going to be in vain. Um, So there was definitely a fear there. And luckily um, it wasn't realized based on everything that I had done and and I guess how hard I had worked to protect her so yeah
2: yeah and you can hear that love that you have for her Mm -hmm. even in the way that you recount it now how how passionate you are about keeping this person that you love so much safe like and what an incredible thing is a big sister that's so young to take on that responsibility but to know that you know you don't want that for her as well Um, yeah I think it's it's amazing to hear. It just it shows your character, I think, in many ways, and that is a character that is ingrained in you as a human being, not something that you've learned over time, but something that you are.
3: Definitely, and I think I've always taken on. It's funny because that lends itself to how I've even even the work that I do. I, I look out for people and I support people, and I'm always looking for ways of how we, can we make this better and how can we get the most out of this situation and um, yeah, it's that that trait has definitely been there for a really long time and you know, don't get me wrong, it's shown up in in ways of trauma, but it has also shown up in these really beautiful friendships and relationships that I have in my life. So
2: I did want to ask again though. I know that we spoke momentarily, I guess, before about more than one thing being true, but it obviously serves you so much for that becoming the title for your book what was the process for you deciding that was the title? Has that been something that's really like rung true to you as you go through this experience of, of I guess, coming out with the abuse and, and starting this new version of a healing journey?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think for me there, there was probably a point where I felt like almost like I was gaslighting myself, like in my own head. So there would be days where I would consider disclosing or having a conversation or whatever it was going to be, because the the disclosure to my sister was definitely the biggest, biggest challenge. Um, and there was just this elephant in the room that like, we all knew, but she didn't know. And yeah and that and then i have my own children and and extended family and a range of other people and so there was just always this you know secret that some people knew about but most people didn't and and whatever else and then I always, um, I'd worked really hard, as I said, shiny neon signs all over the shop trying to distract people, rightly so, like all things I'm really proud of and successes and things that I've worked really hard for, but I'm conscious that I, that the, there's doing something to like 90% so you can just deliver and there's doing something to 102 because you just can't get it wrong because you're so scared that someone's going to go wait a minute what's over there and like pay attention to something else so there was definitely an element there that was trauma based but in that thinking and in that process i would often have these thoughts where i would go well wait people are going to say well you know, it can't have been that bad because your father gave you away at your first wedding. Um, I've been married and divorced. Um, we can talk about that later, but um, we, you know, or like, look at all these photos of you sitting at Christmas dinner or at birthdays, like next to your dad. And like, but like, it can't have been that bad or whatever, whatever horrible thing my brain would tell me. Um, and I'd, kind of go well wait no these things can coexist and they have because i'm living proof and i have the photo evidence of my childhood all the wonderful things of my life that coexist in amongst my abuse and trauma so yes Whilst the abuse was happening, I was also, you know, doing extracurricular activities and I was winning awards at school or I was having birthday parties and we were c- creating family memories together. And those two things are true. And so it was almost like a letting go and accepting that once I accepted that more than one thing can be true and there was no linear and there was no black and white and my. You know, though I um, don't in any way, shape or form excuse my father's behaviour or, um, you know, discount any of the abuse and trauma that I've experienced, I'm also really conscious that there are elements of him that are good and that he can be good and bad at the same time. And And some survivors won't agree with me. And I totally understand, like we are all walking our own journey and all processing this in our own way. And I have full respect for however anyone else needs to process their own trauma and, and process how they view their perpetrator. I get that. Um, But in my case, I'm very, very conscious that there are more than one thing. There is more than one element to my father. There is more than one element to my mother, because that's also a complex part of the story. So my mother is a beautiful, intelligent, capable woman who is incredibly successful who has made decisions that I don't agree with. And she also can be more than one thing. And I think that's also the relationship that people find the most complex because we have been really close for a really big part of my life. And so the friends and family that have known me and have been quite close, they're like, but wait a minute, how did these two think? I was like, well, of course, like you know, most people want a relationship with their parents, especially their mothers as as women. Um, and I wanted that, but I was sacrificing a lot to have that. And then I made a decision to no longer sacrifice that, which meant I couldn't have that anymore. And, and that's a choice I've made to estrange myself. And, and that's where I am in my healing journey. But in the same breath, I have to acknowledge that, In so many ways, she's an incredible mother, but in others, she has failed, um, and she is also more than one thing. Now, that also lends itself to me in the sense that some, mind you, I think as survivors, the one thing we don't judge is when and how we speak. I think we all understand that that is a very, very complex part of this equation. Um, So I don't think there's any survivors out there going, why did she take so long, and why didn't she do whatever? Because we all get it. Um, We've all been there. But I think there's definitely an element of maybe why have I not pursued the criminal justice system? Or why have I not done X, Y, Z? And, And so there's elements there as well, where I acknowledge that I am more than one thing. And I Believe and need more than one thing, and that's where we are today. That doesn't give us any answers. It actually makes it ten times more complicated. But it's true. Like it's it's actually where we are right now um, in a lot of cases, and we hear these very. I'd love to not love's probably not the right word. I I think it would be easier if there was a really clear. This person did this, and therefore they're a bad person, and that is the box we put them in. And then, what if alongside doing that, they raised a million dollars for cancer charity? Can we still call them a like? I don't like. This is just such a really obvious kind of example, and people go, "Oh, but." And then you get stuck, and you go, "Oh, so here's my hypothetical for you, and you're stuck. How do you think it feels like living in this body and doing this every day? So yeah, it just." it flows. It doesn't give me answers, but it flows.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, even some of the most, you know, more prolific offenders that have existed, like uh, Jerry Sandusky, who's an acquaintance, nice guy, offender, who raised millions and millions of dollars for youth organisations. Now, obviously on the flip side, he was abusing many of those children, but he's Mm. probably saved and put into college hundreds of them as well. Mm. So yes, there's wonderful things he's done. His motives, that's not, I don't know. But at the same time, I understand that because it's so contradictory. And that's the thing, I think each survivor is such an individual in what they want, what's healing to us, what's self-serving to us, um, what's helpful. What isn't helpful is asking people, why not this? Why didn't you do that? That adds itself to victim blaming. And I don't Mm. like that. You know, me getting a conviction in my case, was only led by the fact that I was a child and I didn't have a choice. Mm
3: -hmm. And also the occurrence of events, like I've listened to your first episode, and, and there is a very clear sequence of very clear, safe adults who did their job and did things the right way. Hold
0: up. What was that?
3: not many people have that sequence of events so yeah. clearly stated. Um, yeah. And and I, like, I, I was really fascinated in hearing your story because it's very different to mine. Um, but in, you know, what your parents chose to do, what the police chose to do, how they communicated with you, all of those things. I'm very, very conscious that if I went through the criminal justice system now, we're talking 30 years later, it's a very different, different situation. So, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah, everyone's situation is so different. Yeah, mine was definitely immediate
2: intervention. But I do remember thinking, I don't want to do anything about this. I don't want to get somebody in trouble, you know, and it even comes back to the fact that many survivors in at many places in their journeys lie about different things. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're cross-examined or something, for people who get cross-examined in their cases, they go, but you made this statement, you know, in mind, I said he might have. Um, and you might do contradictory behaviours, like you've just said, with your your father walking you down the aisle. You know, you're not living within this one little bubble. You've got other things going on in your life and different reasons to do different things. And sometimes yeah. people just do things to deflect, like you've said, you know, away from yourself and go, look over here, there's something shiny. Um, let's go over there rather than have to deal with. But this like perfectionism you're talking about, and your your, I guess, success in many ways of what you've done. How do you think that's also been an aspect of trying to keep busy? Um, mm. A lot of the mm-hmm. I speak to, have, you know, myself included, have tried so many ways to do so much so that we don't have the time, I guess, to, to process. It's like a hyper-trauma, hyper hyperactivity kind of s- stage.
3: Yeah. And it's so funny. I had my book launch event recently and I had this wonderful woman, Elise, who was facilitating my Q and A and um, we'd planned a few questions, whatever else. And then she went a bit rogue and she was like, I want to read this quote from the book. I'll actually pull it up because I, I think I've got it kind of sitting in my inbox. We were just emailing the other day and it really speaks to what you've just said. So the line says, um, being busy and productive is a great form of armor when you are carrying trauma. And it was funny because even when she read it back, I was like, "Oh, I wrote that." <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's just funny where you forget like every line from your own book. But there were audible gasps from the audience because it was like everyone just got found out for a split second. And some people use that in different ways. But I had talked just before she re- she decided to read this quote. I had said yeah, as a teenager, I drunk and I tried drugs and I did all those things because, and especially right at the peak of the abuse and then the trauma after telling my mum and us not leaving, I was right in there in the thick of it. So I was trying all of these things to numb and deflect and do all of that, which is what we expect of victim survivors. It's what, Hollywood tells us they're supposed to do in all the movies like we see that behavior and don't get me wrong I understand that those numbing techniques are there because they're kind of in some ways the easiest ones to access but they're not socially acceptable so we work out as survivors very quickly that if we want to have a career or have a family of our own or have relationships or just get on with our lives to whatever extent that we can whilst processing and healing or numbing or whatever we're trying to do to get through the next day, we still need a thing and being busy is a thing. And it's, it's like we weaponize it on ourselves. So every time I would have another project or another thing or another thing, and it had to be perfect. And, um, Elise, who, uh, as I said, was doing the Q&A with me. I've known her for about five years and she's known of my trauma for quite some time. And She was saying, you're so still now. Like there's just this kind of real calm. I'm like, yeah, because I'm free. Like I I can just be because I'm not trying to get you to look over here. I'm just like, okay, you're just looking at me and I'm okay with that. And we're sitting here in this moment and we're still. And I said, oh, I've realized what I was like before. I was like a hummingbird. So everyone thought I was still because think about how fast hummingbirds, like they look so elegant and whatever, but when you look at how fast their wings are going, like they're working so hard to just do so much because the thought of standing still for too long is really vulnerable and the thought of just being in your own body, be it because it's full of triggers or whatever's happening for you or, your you know, your own mental health and your thoughts sitting in that is terrifying. So the busier we are and the more that we can do around us. And if I wasn't busy, I was literally just breaking stuff, like starting fights with my husband or just like being really, really strict with the kids. And then just like having a go at them about something random because I needed to do the thing. Like I needed to have something to keep me busy. And now I'm, like I'm not saying I'm the most chill person in the world because I'm just not. But and I also have a whole business that's based on organizing stuff, so I wouldn't be very good at my job if I was too chill. But at the same time, I'm I'm really present, and when I when I'm with people, I'm I'm there. I'm there a hundred percent. Like my brain isn't trying to buzz and do other things because I don't need to numb that. I I'm starting to embrace the terrifying thing that is being present with other humans and being safe in my own brain and body to then be present with others. Yeah, that's
2: you've given me goosebumps and <laughs> especially around two words you said about being still and being present because I think mm. those are some really common themes that come through this entire podcast platform and, you know, every survivor and, you know, it is so hard to find safety in something as your body that was violated that was unsafe at that time it is so hard and difficult to find that stillness and calmness to be able to look ahead rather than react you know and and Mm -hmm. to to deflect as well I think that's absolutely incredible and I think it's just as soon as you said that I was like oh my god full body chills (laughs) when you relate to something so much you're just like oh my god girl get it (laughs) (laughs)
3: but <laughs> well, it's so true though and, and what that's what I found really interesting um because I was so focused on Elisa's question I was actually looking at her uh, opening my book going what the hell is she about to read I didn't know what line she was gonna read but then I didn't hear like I uh it was later that day as I was mingling with people afterwards and there were just people going you broke me today because now I have to go unpack all the like all of my stuff around why I'm so busy all the time and I was like oh yeah sorry about that I (laughs) kind of it's it's not as obvious as having a bottle of wine every night or whatever like whatever you're doing to to numb in whatever shape or form because we Even we even do that just when we're stressed, like stressed with work or whatever, like I might have a glass of wine and I might have another one and I might, or whatever your thing is, might not be wine, might be chocolate, might be junk food, whatever it is. It's normally some food is the easiest. Something you consume is normally the easiest thing, but it's when it's socially acceptable behavior and people reward you for it. Look at, you just got this done in half the time. Look how efficient you are. And it's like, yep. I'm not going to tell you where that comes from. It's all trauma based. Um, And I've started saying that to people that I I can throw those jokes around to a handful of people and they're like, oh, okay. Like my whole business is probably based on trauma somewhere deep inside. And (laughs) that's a bit terrifying. We won't put that on our slogan. We'll just, um, yeah. But it's, it's, and being aware of it is really important because it means that when especially even with my clients, when they're willing to sit still for long enough, I can go, okay, so I can see the busy work and we'll get that list done, no problems, but what else is going on? And they're like, oh, crap, she did that thing where she looks straight through me (laughs) Um, and we're not talking about life admin anymore and we're talking about human to human. And I think that's, I'm really grateful that I have this gift now that I can share with people because it doesn't matter what, what you've experienced, we've all we've all had a moment where we've frantically kept ourselves busy because we didn't want to feel the moment.
2: Absolutely. And I like that you've rephrased that as well in terms of being busy isn't always working and being productive. Being busy can be, you know, those toxic behaviours that we talk about being, you know, with, which we see in so many people with trauma history, um, especially child trauma history, alcoholism, drug abuse, things like that. You know, I've gone through my share of just binge eating when I really don't, if I've got nothing else to do (laughs) and I've I've exhausted all options, you know, (laughs) those are the things as well. And it it is a horrible thing to have to sit there within yourself sometimes. But once you get to that point where you can be still and present, life feels different. And your
3: experience of others also feels different. So it's when you trust yourself to feel safe in yourself, your experience with other people is is a whole nother level because you're not you're not standing there going, okay, crap, they're gonna, okay, I've got to put this armor on and no, they said this thing and now they're too close and what am I doing? And like you're not you're not thinking about all the other things. You're just kind of there and the connection is is really genuine. But that's so vulnerable. And and it takes being really comfortable in yourself to do that now it's taken me like 30 years to get there and i'm still there's still days where i'm not there so i could have you know a trigger or something that flares up and i watch all the all the like it's almost like that kind of like an iron man suit you know all the pieces come up over time yeah. I'm like ching 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 <laughs> like you feel it come up and but now i'm like okay let's just and sometimes it's just let's that back that down a little bit because i'm not quite there yet but recognizing it is really important a hundred percent and I think
2: even after an interaction for example with somebody where you sit there and you obsess almost sometimes over did I say that did they think that was funny did I talk too much what did I do wrong Mm -hmm. you lose all of that because all of a sudden you realize actually they they wouldn't hang out with me if they didn't like me yeah
3: Um, and they're probably thinking about their own stuff anyway because that's what we do as humans we're kind of busy trying to work out. We you and I were laughing about it before. We're like, we're gonna have a whole conversation and then I'm not gonna remember anything I said. <laughs> There's something about this
2: process that you literally just forget everything you have said. But we did have
3: another couple of
2: things. I wanted to talk to you about one because I've not really heard this phrase before. Um, that you when we were speaking earlier is courageous intentions. I heard it and I was like, That sounds really cool. It sounds
3: you <laughs> know making like I'm it up. So if it sounds cool that I'm on the right track. Yeah. Well, I
2: think for me, I, I, got, I remember one one year somebody gave me the Miranda Kerr Affirmations book or something. And I mm. thought it was so wanky. And it's just <laughs> me, you know, it was very fluffy, very like yep. right, my intentions are. And it wasn't like purposeful. But I think what I mm. like about these courageous intentions, from what I can tell, you know it sounds to me really purposeful it sounds really that there, hits there's my a bit soul of backbone
3: there <laughs> yeah it hits and my I soul and i don't really do fluff like i'm a Punchy in the face, kind of gal. So there's not a lot of fluff here. Um, (laughs) There never has been. I think also, like, as I said, when you're really busy and moving fast, you're like, I have time for this. Tell me what you need so I can do the thing. Like, yeah. yeah. yeah, So I have never really done small talk and fluff very well. But for me, when it comes to courageous intention, um, so I guess I'll start with intention. Uh, For a really long time when I was in this, probably the pre disclosure. Point of my life, which as we've discussed is, is quite recent for me, I was doing all of the things that I wanted to discuss, but just not discussing that one thing. So people would say, oh, when are you going to start doing coaching? And when are you going to do this? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, oh, cause you've just got so much insight on this and that. And I'm like, Okay, but in my head, I was like, I can't do any of that until I unpack this really important part of my life and and decide where I want to go from here. Um, and so there was for a really long time. I and I still do speak about living a life of intention. So, for me, the way that I look at that and the, the easiest way to I get people to that point, and I do this even with my like organizing clients, is. I say to them, think about where you want to be later in life, or think about how you want people to talk about you and, and think about you when you're on your last days. Um, and you know, how do they describe your interactions, and how do they describe the person that you are? And and they're probably not going to talk about. They might not even talk about what you did for a job as such, but they're going to talk about how you made them feel and the experiences you shared and maybe something wise that you said to them or that it had impact and, or that moment where you laughed so hard, you couldn't get off the floor because you couldn't breathe or, or just these beautiful memories. And then if we take that feeling and we bring it back to today and we go, okay, wait, what if it was to all end tomorrow? What am I doing today to have those things? So I Take Michael, like most people I speak to, but definitely my clients, and I say, okay, we're talking about all the nitty gritty life admin stuff. Great, let's get that stuff done because that's just admin. And now let's think about life as a whole because you have, you know, your friends and your family and and the people that you want to connect with. And how can you do it intentionally? How can you make sure you're living your life with intention? And so I very much live like that and I only say yes to the stuff I really want to do. Only, um, And it's very much even now to the point where I've decided who in my family I still have relationships with because I'm like, no, these people don't align with my values. I don't feel like I'm my safest, best self when I'm with them or in their company. I need to put some boundaries in place there. Um, and then how I parent with my children and all of those sorts of things. And and I'm really comfortable in saying that worst case scenario, something terrible was to happen tomorrow. I'm really confident that the way people would speak about me tomorrow is the same way I would want them to speak about me when I passed or in my 90s or whatever. So that's kind of where that intention piece comes in. And and for a really long time, I'd been framing it as a life of intention but of late, especially since writing my memoir and since sharing my story and having more and more conversations, I was like, no, there's something missing here. There's, there's another piece because all of that sounds great in theory. Like I've just explained that to you and you can kind of do that in your head. You can go, okay, well, what do I want and who do I want around me and what? Are, blah, 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 blah. You can do that stuff in your head. But to do it takes courage. Yeah. And that's where those two intercept. So to put boundaries in place takes courage. To say yes to the things you genuinely want and no to the things that do not serve you takes courage. To tell someone that you love them every day or however often you need to or want to takes courage because it's vulnerable. And so I've realized that I've been saying this stuff for a while and it's all great, but there wasn't that that clincher, that, that bit that I was like, what's the missing piece? And I'm like, it's courage because it takes courage to do these things. So, yeah, it's taken a lot of courage to get to where I am in the last few years um, and I was almost there. I just had to do the biggest, hardest part. But even every day I wake up and I go, okay, because I could, I could just pick up the phone and go see my parents. Um, I could go back to Christmas dinners and that would probably fulfill a part of me that wants to belong and wants to have a family and wants to do all of those things. But it takes courage to live in my values and it takes courage to make certain decisions that I know align with who I want to be and who I, how I want to be remembered. So that's what, to me, courageous intentions means. Absolutely. I think that's
2: incredible. And even just with that last example, we often say, like, don't do anything that doesn't serve you but i think the way that you've just framed that part of being like i could do these things i could do these things but it's not aligning to what i want what i intend for myself what you what you want to emulate for your children like i think that's just such a wonderful way to phrase it that i've never heard before and i yeah you're right it has a bit of backbone to it because it's like you know what i'm just going to have to bloody do it i'm just going to have to <laughs> yeah i've just got to i've got to take the leap here you know and i'll give you mm-hmm. one example and it's just such just little things. So on Facebook, I've I've clicked tentative to an upcoming uh, old <laughs> friend's birthday party, um, and she said some really hurtful things to me. And you know we've gone to this stage, and I'm like, you know what? I, I actually don't think that this is serving me anymore. I don't think this is repairable anymore. And I think in that while you were just sitting there, and I'm like, I'm just gonna, like I'm, I'm done. done. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm either gonna delete it because I don't want to be mean, but I'm like at the same time I'm like I'm just not gonna go because it's not going to serve me. I'm going to panic about it for days. I'm going to be stressed about it. I'm going to be worried. I won't, you know, I won't enjoy myself. Maybe she won't enjoy herself. Like, and it's so true, but you know, to do that is going to be a big statement to do. That is going to be a big thing to a lot of people to, to actively not do those things. Yes, it does. It does. It does take courage, but at the end of the day, that's putting yourself first. And you can't show up, I believe, for other people properly that you want to and live the life that you want to if you are too busy worrying about everybody else instead of yourself.
3: Yeah. And the thing is, that, yeah, there might be that split-second moment where, she, be it because you decline the invite or, she, you know, at a point in the night where she realises you're not there or whatever else. But as I said before about when people are only really thinking about their own stuff she'll be pretty busy doing her thing. Like she's not going to really at the the time and maybe afterwards there might be a conversation or whatever. But it's also um, boundaries are there like for a reason and they're there to protect ourselves. But the hardest part is enforcing them. Like Mm -hmm. we have to do that. No one else is going to do that work for you. So you've got to identify what the boundary is to protect your mental health, your self-care, your, your, um, your own values, whatever it is that the boundaries in place for, but then you've got to hold the line and you've got to hold it and you've got to hold it. And every time those, those opportunities or some people just try to barrel straight through them, you have to go no. Um, and then if you're not at your best, it's then, and this is probably I've, I've found this is definitely one of the hardest things for survivors. It's, then that you have to have your trusted people hold the line for you. Yes. And that is, for me, one of the hardest parts because I was the, I'll do it myself and I'm the only person that's protected me all this time and no one else looked after me. And so now my poor husband has to, well, not as much anymore. I'm getting better (laughs) at this. But like he just had to put up with the whole, I'll just do it myself and I don't need your help and, it's, it's fine um, when now I'm like, I'm exhausted and I'm working on some stuff at the moment, so I need you to hold this line firm and when that person calls, I need you to take my phone and say, sorry, she's not taking calls today. Yeah. And that's such a huge trust to let someone support you, um, but it's kind of another theme of my book where I talk about positioning of how we support people and I specifically say I want people to walk beside me and I give clear examples of the difference between ahead of me behind me just kind of floating in the ether there's lots of different examples of what that looks and feels like and has done for me as a survivor Um, but in that support you can when you've got the right people around you they can also help you hold your boundaries in place but most of the time it's us having to do that
2: (laughs) yeah And I think there's two things to that, like boundaries, interesting. I've never thought about it this way, but, you know, you've got boundaries that are self-enforced, like, you know, I'm not going to go and do that thing, I'm not going to whatever. But then you've also got your boundaries where you don't allow certain people to act in certain ways. So you've got this like positive um, in one way and positive in another way kind of boundaries that you've got to set. So you've got to kind of grapple with the things you can control and you can't control. Mm. And I always go into that, you know, circle, the things in the circle that I can control, the things outside of it that I can't. And that's where my mind just went then because I was like, it's so, you know, when we talk about boundaries and I think as survivors, a lot of the things that people post about is quite generic. Mm. So it's interesting thinking about what the actual application of that is, what does that mean to me? Mm. Um, But having people that you trust I think is a difficult thing to find as well for survivors because like we've spoken about, you're in this stage of like um, hypervigilance constantly, which I think Mm. is, you know, it's exhausting. You're in this fight or flight stage. You're trying to do everything, smoke and mirrors. Um, And then, you know, this self-doubt, this limiting belief, this number of different traumatic things, I think in many ways stop you from thinking that anybody has the ability to support you as Mm. well. Not just that you're willing to give up that control in many ways. Is that something yeah. that you have found or, or what was it like when you kind of decided to let that guard down and, and allow this, the people that you love like that in
3: your life to support you? I think for me it's definitely been a, a really long journey, um, but I did, um, I, I went on a, um, a leadership retreat which was run by a woman called Kemi Nekvapil and she is one of the few people in Australia that's been trained by Brene Brown to run her Dare to Lead workshops. So you're getting all of this wisdom from Brene Brown through another incredible facilitator. Um, And if anyone's looking for a book on asking for help or asking for support, she has a book, Kemi has a book called The Gift of Asking, but she also has recently released a book called Power, which is Amazing. So, like, it's just a book I recommend to anyone, but definitely people in this space um, to work out how to reclaim their power. Um, so, I was at this retreat, and there was a part of the exercise where you have to kind of put a name. There's a normal A4 sheet, and there's this teeny tiny box, and you have to just write the names of the people you kind of you value their opinion and you trust and whatever and i like wrote a name and then rubbed it out and wrote another name and, and then i worked it out i was like i love all these people but when it comes to the crunch like it was just my husband he was kind of the only person and it took years for us to get there because i'd say maybe 5 years ago i probably would have just written my own name and Got, like just tried to go it alone again um, because I didn't want to, you know, trust anyone or be vulnerable enough and, you know, I was married five years ago so that's not a good sign. But it, it's just taken a real like disabling of armour and genuinely trusting him and, and also finding language to talk through things. So kind of getting to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm venting about this, but I need you to just sit in this really uncomfortable conversation. And, and that's taken practice on both of our parts. But, yeah, as I said, I've married before. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think there's definitely people out there and they don't have to be a, a partner or a romantic partner for them to, to have that role in your life because there are some incredible humans out there that I love and w- who would probably – end up in that kind of support role for me if it wasn't for the fact that I have my husband. So, yeah, Yeah. it's just taken work on both of our parts to get there though. It sounds like it's been a constant like evolution throughout Mm. this of
2: of learning and relearning and adapting to what each other need, which I think the basis of is in communication, communicating Mm. clearly. Um, And it's like, we really don't value enough is communication, being able to even identify nonverbal cues that state that somebody is too stressed or is not okay. And being able to go, do you want me to listen? Do you want me to give advice? Do you want me to help? Do you want me to leave you alone?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and, and during the towards the end of like finishing my book and definitely the release process, I gave him full veto power. I was like, if I am doing the things that you know, like if you're seeing the physical science, you need to pull me up and you need to, you know, pull your veto card out and go, I think today's not the day. Like we need to cancel this interview or we need to do this, or we need to take a break because you're, you're, busying yourself and pushing through when you're going to break down in a second. And we don't do that anymore. Um, he's the only person I've ever said you can override the thing because um, I don't l- like letting people down and cancelling things and whatever else. But I had said to him, I'm like, I need I need to terrifyingly give you this power because you're the only person that's going to see these cues. And luckily we didn't get to that point and I put a lot of mental health um, care in place before I released my memoir, and I had a lot of great support around that. Yeah, it was uh, there was definitely a conversation where I was like, "You're going to need to do the thing if if I just keep powering through and go into busy mode." So that was it was pretty amazing just to have that conversation in the, in the beginning, which was good.
2: Listening to part one with the amazing Caroline, we will be back next week for part two. So for now, thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode.